The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. God wants us to read His book. God wants us to read His book. As you probably know, our dominant preaching diet at Bethlehem aims to first glorify that which is most glorious and second, to build up the people. Therefore, our diet is what is called exegetical. That is, we preach our way through the Bible or a section of the Bible at a time, looking carefully at what it says and means, striving to unpack each section sufficiently to avoid misunderstanding them and making applications so that we're not hearers only but doers of the word, as Jesus' brother said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone looks and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, want to be blessed? Be a doer of the word. Currently, as Stephen alluded earlier in the service, we're preaching our way through the book of Acts. And this morning, we have arrived at one of those bite-sized sections that is larger than the average bite. 68 verses. We discussed as a pastoral staff whether it's too many verses, too much for a service like this. And better preachers than I have arrived at this text and have decided not to read all of it in the worship service. But I sense that God just might be pleased if we read the whole thing. Now, we're not out to set any records for lengthy readings, not even close. For example, Nehemiah 9.1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled, all the people, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So I ask myself, what more appropriate activity is there for a worship service than to read what God has to say? That is Scripture. Using a timer, one reading of today's text took 9 minutes and 33 seconds. So is there something defective with my heart and my mind if I won't welcome less than 10 minutes of Bible reading in our collective gathering? Well, so now you've guessed it. I'm going to read the whole text, but not all in one piece. As we move through it, I'm asking you to be on the lookout for the answers to several questions. First of all, why does Luke include this story in the book of Acts? There's a lot of different stories that are strung together in Acts. Why did he put this one in there? Second question, what's the point of Stephen's reply, which is the longest speech in the book? And Stephen is going to say something here that we're going to see. It's going to get him killed. What is it? He's going to say something that enrages his listeners. They'll grind their teeth, rush at him, drag him out of town, and stone him. So what in the world does he say that would trigger such a response? And one more question. Why should you be interested, why should I be interested in this ancient account? Why listen? Why take precious real estate in our worship service for this story. 
Well, I think you'll find a wonderful answer to that question that relates directly to us in this room. So here we go. We're going to jump in. Acts chapter 6, starting at the 8th verse. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. In spite of the fact that he has this amazing resume, he's full of grace, full of power, doing signs and wonders. And as we shall see in a few verses here, he's full of wisdom and filled with the Spirit. Quite a resume. They didn't like what he was posting on his Facebook page, and they want him canceled. Truth has its detractors, but it remains the truth nonetheless. Stephen's detractors registered their displeasure but couldn't withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And what makes me say it that way? What makes me say he had wisdom and the spirit? Answer, the next verse, verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So we've already seen back in verse 8, Stephen is full of grace and power. And here in verse 10, we see the source of that grace and power, the spirit. Even though Stephen speaks with grace, power, wisdom, and spirit, his detractors are not satisfied. So, verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, these are false allegations. We maybe should explain, uh, maybe for kids, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is saying or doing something disrespectful towards something or someone that's glorious, especially God. And in these days, blasphemy was a capital offense. In other words, they would kill you for blasphemy. 12, verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him. So his detractors are not done. And when they disputed with Stephen, God was not done. When they seize him, God is not done. Never accuse God of failing, for God is never done. They seized him and brought him before the council, verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Observe. Why would they be concerned about Jesus destroying anything if Jesus were dead? Remember, they saw to it that he was dead. Dead men don't go around destroying anything. But they know, and some of them are eyewitnesses, that Jesus is risen. The Lord is risen! risen Verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know what angels look like in this passage or anywhere else, but angels are not nervous. When the angel removed the stone from the tomb, I get a chuckle out of the fact that then he sat on it. Take that. 
Perhaps Stephen believes Jesus when Jesus says, Blessed are you, blessed are you, when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice, be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And that's going to be relevant in just a few moments here. On to chapter 7. Since allegations have been made, the high priest provides the defendant, Stephen, an opportunity for rebuttal. Verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? Stephen's life is on the line. How will he respond? How would you respond? In answering the high priest, Stephen decides to go way back. Verse 2, Stephen said, he starts out with a brotherly tone here, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory, that title for God, appears only once in the Old Testament, in Psalm 29. But I think Stephen, I think, I imagine, that he's using that title because it shows he's not blaspheming God. He thinks God is glorious. He uses the title that says so, the God of glory. The God of glory appeared to our, so he's identifying with his accusers. He's saying, you're uh, a... followers of Abraham, so am I. You've charged me with blaspheming God, but I'm clearly not. I agree that he's the God of glory. Continuing in verse 2, he appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, which could be called Chaldea, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your, one, land, and, 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 from, number two, your kindred. And go to the land I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, that's that Mesopotamia that was in verse two there, and lived in Haran. But wait, he's not gone all the way to the promised land. He's only obeyed partially. Haran is not the destination God has in mind. In verse three, he was commanded to leave his family, but he didn't. So how will he get all the way there? Instead of Abraham removing himself, as God commanded, God takes matters into his own hands, and he removes Abraham the rest of the way to the land appointed. Verse 4, And after his father died, Abraham's father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So observe the astonishing and beautiful fidelity of God. You only go halfway with me, I go all the way with you. You half-heartedly get distracted from me, but I will carry on to completion that which I have begun. So to recap, what's taking place here in Jerusalem, where Stephen has been apprehended, it started a long time ago in a galaxy far away. Verse 5. Yet he, that is God, gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. He's got no child. There's a promise to his offspring. He doesn't have any offspring. He doesn't have any kids. No child. God is not done. Verse 6, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. 
Imagine God revealing to you His good plan for your life that your family, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your descendants are going to be enslaved and afflicted for, oh, 400 years. Well, if that happens, God is not done. Verse 7, But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, now hold it. These are the eventual founders of the twelve tribes of Israel, and they will have their names inscribed on the twelve gates of heaven one day. And God has chosen them for special honor, special signification, in spite of themselves, for Now we look at the nasty stuff that they do in their stiff-necked resistance of God. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Abraham, do you know how your descendants are going to enter into slavery? They'll capture and sell each other. The brothers are saying, we don't have to bow to this whippersnapper who says we're going to bow to him. We don't like it and we can get rid of him. Now, Stephen has been accused of blasphemy, but they are the blasphemers. The patriarchs. But God was with him, verse 10, and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom, the same characteristics that mark Stephen. Before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Verse 11, now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan. A famine. When a famine comes, God's not done. And great affliction. God is not done. Our fathers could find no food. God is not done. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers at that great tearful reunion. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. What a God. Through their mischief, he is saving them. When those brothers throw Joseph into a pit, God is saving those brothers. When they take him out of the pit and sell him into slavery, God is saving those brothers and Joseph and all Israel and you and me. When Joseph goes to Potiphar's house and he's framed for something he did not do and he goes off to prison for over a decade, God is saving those brothers who did that terrible thing. They meant it for evil, Genesis 50 says. In and through their sinning, God is saving them. Keep in mind, by telling all this story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, Stephen is answering the high priest about Jesus, who said that the temple would be destroyed. Stephen's answer about Jesus is all this history 
Our understanding of Jesus depends upon our understanding of the Old Testament. And our understanding of the Old Testament is incomplete until we grasp its connection to Jesus. At this time, the only Bible Stephen has is the Old Testament. Nevertheless, he believes it points to Jesus, as he will show before he's finished. So the story about Abraham is not mainly about Abraham, and the story about Joseph isn't mainly about Joseph, and the story about Moses is not mainly about Moses. And so it is with David and Solomon and the others. They all point to someone else. Verse 17, But as the time of the promise drew near, now God most assuredly fulfills his promises, but he fulfills his promises on a timeline that only he knows. It's not a timeline of our design. As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Now I'll just remind you, God is not done. Verse 20, At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Now, so far, Stephen hasn't said anything that's gotten him killed. He continues, verse 23. And when he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He, Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. People that you are trying to help will not always appreciate your good intentions. And, and we could admit that Moses could have gone about things better. So everyone in this vignette falls short of the glory of God. The slave driver, Moses, the Israelites, everybody's messy. Verse 26. Now on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? God himself will answer that question in a few verses. Verse 28. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when Moses flees the White House and lives on the backside of the desert for 40 years, do you suppose God is done? <laughs> do you hear a note that I'm striking throughout this passage? Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, 40 more years, Lord, what is taking you so long? Answer, perfect wisdom, that's what. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, 
I take that to mean lay aside your pollutions in the same way that you might take your shoes off if you go to visit a friend at their house and it's all snowy and salty and stuff out on the sidewalk. You, you kick your shoes off. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. 34. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I am not done. But I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Do you see the shift in Stephen's argument? You accuse me of blaspheming Moses. Who has blasphemed Moses? The patriarchs. Who made you a ruler and a judge? Well, God did. God appointed this sinful murderer who stammers at a burning bush. This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing the wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And now Stephen begins to hint at Jesus. 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet. What prophet? Hmm. A prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, this angel of the Lord, and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. Whoa, who's doing the blaspheming? The fathers refused to obey Moses. Stephen has led his listeners right into being reminded that the fathers, not Stephen, were the ones who dishonored Moses. 39, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. He's been up on that mountain too long. They presume God is done. 41, and they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Note that statement, we're going to come back to that. They're rejoicing in the work of their hands. I think there's a message that God wants us to hear in these Old Testament stories. The patience of God is observed over and over again. He's long-suffering. He shows steadfast love to thousands. He's in no hurry to punish anyone. But there's another lesson that God wants us to hear. There's a time that comes when patience is at an end. Time's up. And he turns away and give sinners over to the evil desires of their hearts. The opportunity to repent vanishes. You can resist God too long. We see in the next verse, God turns them over to demons, Moloch and Raphon, verse 42, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon and the images that you made to worship and, uh-oh, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now remember, Stephen is giving all this historical narrative 
in response to the charges against him, namely that he's a blasphemer, he's been tampering with and disrupting the law that Moses received from the angel of the Lord, and he's a blasphemer by advocating the destruction of the temple, like a, a, some sort of a terrorist or something. And Stephen continues his defense by giving a brief history of the temple. Verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. God is still working for them. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And now Stephen is about to really irk his hearers. We come to the single word on which Stephen's testimony turns, it pivots, it swivels, or the first word in verse 48, yet, yet, there was this house that we built for God, yet, but, Stephen lets all the air out of the temple balloon by saying God doesn't live there in the first place. 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. There's that phrase, made by hands. Back in verse 41, we saw the people rejoicing in the work of their hands when they made the golden calf. And in Stephen's day, they're proud of their temple. We made this. It's a, it's a mark of our nation. Made with human hands. But God's dwelling is not in anything made by human hands. And we'll see this again when we get to chapter 17 later this summer. Now, what is their problem? They took their significance from what they could make with their hands. Their own performance was central. They're self-centered. In Stephen's day, the temple for them had become a symbol of what they could achieve. When Jesus said he would destroy the temple, one of the things he meant is that he would put an end to such man-centered worship. End of verse 48, as the prophet Isaiah says, heaven is my throne. I'm a big God. You think I can fit in that tent that you've got there? I can't fit on this planet. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so now fasten your seatbelts and put on your crash helmets because Stephen turns the tables and this will get him killed. 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Remember the patriarchs? The ones who sold Joseph into slavery? Later, the ones who rejected Moses and killed the various prophets. End of 51. So do you. You're doing what the patriarchs did. 52. In fact, here's this question. It's just so broad. It's just so broad. 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? This is the pattern with you, folks, he's saying to them. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of, and here it is, the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, 
you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I'm not the one resisting the Holy Spirit. I'm not the one who's stiff-necked. I'm not the one failing to keep Moses' law. I'm not the one who persecuted anyone. I'm not the one who killed the righteous one. You are. And at this point in chapter 7, they're going to drag Stephen to the edge of town and stone him. Now, if that were happening to you, what would you say? 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, go back to chapter 6, verse 8, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In that moment, it's as though, at least I can picture it this way, it's as though Jesus says to Stephen, they don't approve of what you're doing, but I do. 56, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, refusal to listen, unwillingness, and they rushed together at him. Just because you speak the truth doesn't mean it will be heard or appreciated. 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now, I was out riding bike yesterday and I brought a visual aid. <clears throat> this is a, uh, a not very large rock. Look at the cross over here. You've got some really large specimens of rock. And the way stonings would happen is that maybe you've pictured it in the movies where they gather around in a 360-degree circle. That's not how it goes because if they miss the guy, they hit each other. So they don't want crossfire. So they would rush at someone up against the wall and, and pelt him until he drops. So they throw smaller stones like baseball, tennis ball-sized until, until he drops. Then they get up closer and, and they'll, they get upon him. They're throwing the rocks toward the ground, actually, and breaking the cranium and breaking the eye socket and breaking the jaw and breaking the teeth until he's dead, and then they don't stop. They want to make sure. They want to exercise their anger. They kick and throw, and this uh, this would really hurt if it if it hit you uh, with any speed at all. I just don't want to rush over. And they stoned him. And we move on to the next verse, as though now we'll have a commercial from our sponsor. Not that. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. God is not done with Saul, is he? The law required the witnesses to throw the first stones. They removed their cloaks so they could really wind up and hurl the rocks. And Saul guarded their cloaks. 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen believes Jesus is there. He's talking to Jesus there. And Jesus is not stopping the stoning. 
Why? I'll give one answer in just a moment. Verse 60. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If you're ready to die like that, you're ready to live. Stephen quotes Jesus here, as you well know, from Luke 23, 34, when he says, receive my spirit, and when he says, do not hold the sin against them. There are a lot of parallels between Stephen and Jesus. They were both arrested. They were both led away. They both had to endure false witnesses. They both were reviled for speaking of the destruction of the temple. They were both challenged by the high priest to give an answer, explain yourself. Both described the Son of Man as being at the right hand of God. Both were accused of blasphemy. Both were killed publicly. Both sought divine forgiveness for their aggressors. Both placed their spirits in the Lord's hand. And notice how Stephen, in this long answer that he gave to the high priest, is imitating Jesus. Because when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he explained who he was by unpacking the Old Testament for seven miles. Verse 60, And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then, God is not done. Come back next week. Now, Acts chapter 8 in the first verse and Acts eleven nineteen are one continuous story. So there's, there's three chapters in there of other narrative that's just kind of inserted in there. But this story of the stoning of, Jesus, of Stephen is picked up in chapter 11. It goes like this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, there it is, chapter 11, verse 19, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. They're just announcing this history to Jews. But, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, the non-Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen of Bethlehem, this is how you and I got saved. This is how the news got to us. Stephen had to get stoned so that they would scatter with the news. That's why Jesus didn't rescue, one reason why he didn't rescue Stephen when he was being stoned. This story about the stoning of Stephen is part of our story. If you follow the chain of how you came to Christ and you follow it back far enough, you're going to get to this story. This sermon is aimed at enlarging the gratitude in our hearts. Don't you feel grateful for Stephen? Luke includes this story in the book of Acts because it points to Jesus, which is the whole point of the whole book. And the whole point of Stephen's reply to his accusers is to point to Jesus through the Old Testament. And we should be interested in this story of Stephen because Jesus and their proclamation of his life, death, and resurrection is part of the chain of events leading to our salvation. So now my prayer is that the Spirit of God would descend on us like it did on Stephen. Let's ask him for that to happen by singing, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart.
Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.